This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest edition. It's Wednesday, March 22nd, 2017. On today's show, Personal Shopper, the new thriller from Olivier Assayas about a celebrity assistant played by Kristen Stewart, haunted by the spirit of her dead brother. Then Chuck Berry, the extraordinary musician who, it is not a stretch to say, invented rock and roll with a friend of the podcast, Jody Rosen. And finally, we chat about the sale of Us Weekly to the company that owns the National Enquirer with who else? Lindsay Weber and Bobby Finger of the spectacular podcast, Who Weekly. Steve and Dana are on vacation, but worry not because we've got two GabFest all-stars to fill in. I'm joined today by Slate Senior Editor and Editorial Director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Hi, Julia. And Slate's TV critic, Willa Paskin. Hello, Willa. Hi. Personal Shopper is the new film by Olivier Assayas, starring Kristen Stewart as the assistant to a celebrity who jets around Paris on a Vespa uh, and occasionally to other uh, European capitals, getting fancy clothes for the celebrity and resenting her. Part of why she resents the job is that she's mourning her twin brother, uh, and uh, the movie also has some spooky spiritual woo-woo stuff in it that you'll get a bit of a sense of from this clip in which uh, Kristen Stewart's character talks to a German journalist who uh, knows her boss. What are you waiting for? My uh, brother died here. My, my twin brother died in Paris. An accident? No. No, heart attack. I actually have the same malformation. You are staying here to mourn. No, I'm waiting. I told you I was waiting. What are you waiting for? So we made this oath. Whoever died first would send the other a sign. A sign from, from the afterlife. You could call it that. You could call it a million things. But how do you know if it's a sign? I'm a medium. He was he was a medium. I'll just know it. All right. Well, this movie has gotten uh, both rave reviews and perplexed reviews from people who think it is a brilliant tour de force by an astonishing actress only coming into her powers and a a director at the height of his talents and other people who think it is confusing and strange. Uh, Gabe, what camp do you fall into? What did you think of Personal Shopper? Well, it's definitely confusing and strange, but I also think it's like a great movie and probably a masterpiece. It, uh, it, it. Whoa. 
you can hear in that clip, like, there is some cornball to this movie, right? This is a ghost story about a twin brother, and, like, it's not even played in a winky campy way. It's played in a very flat way that just really highlights, like, wow, that's super cheesy. This is a movie about a girl who's trying to get in touch with the spirit of her dead brother or whatever. And yet... By putting this in this sort of realist frame and 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 using the ghost story uh, in a way that I had never seen before, but but to to describe and to represent this very large and significant share of our lives that takes place in what used to be called a virtual world, by connecting it to the the her sort of peripatetic career, traveling from one capital to another, basically by herself, receiving text messages from a person who she can't even identify the the sort of uh, her boss is one of these celebrities who is maybe an actress or a model we don't really know but there's a sort of cloud of glamour that hangs around her and separates her from the world there's a kind of ghostliness to all of the realistic aspects of the film and the presence of actual palpable ghosts and the discussions of getting in touch with actual palpable ghosts becomes a way to approach these aspects of of contemporary life that i think filmmakers and writers and artists are, are having a hard time representing it feels like a breakthrough to me in that way. Wait, so the breakthrough is that the ghost story helps us understand the dislocation of technology? Yeah, there's this big challenge right now for artists in every medium, writers, filmmakers, playwrights, about how how do we represent this weird reality that we are living in all of a sudden in which immediate physical experience has been downgraded and, and this very large and significant share of our lives takes place in these sort of um, ethereal spaces that, that, that are, are not palpable in the traditional way. And a ghost story becomes a form in which that can be depicted in a in a realist way. There's like uh, a sort of almost like a thirty or forty minute segment in the middle of the movie that's that's kind of its most te- intense, where all you're seeing is Kristen Stewart exchanging text messages with an unknown interlocutor. That's right, and the who, phone who is... may or may not be a ghost, and it's playing a joke on you, this person in the theater who shut your phone off by making you literally read text messages happening at the speed of actual text messages for 30 minutes on this huge screen. But that that segment was transfixing. That Absolutely. was like great cinema. That was the cinema. only good part of the movie. And what, <laughs> and what you're seeing is like the actual iOS messages interface totally. with the little bubbles that mean like yes. somewhere far away is typing. Yeah. And, and the word was, red appears. Right, it take, took as long as it, a real yeah, text message and, conversation takes. And, and someone has read what you just said and now they are typing back to you. If that's not a ghost story, what is? But it's a ghost story that we all experience every day. Gabe, I love this interpretation I really hated this movie, but I like, like, this is a good way of thinking about it. Like, I left this movie and I was like, I'm a Philistine. I did not get it. I actually encountered some girls on the subway who were, like, talking about, they're like, why is she naked two times for no reason? I was like, did you just see Personal Shopper? And they were like, we did. <laughs> we don't understand it at all. I was like, yeah, me neither. Um, but I really like this interpretation. But I thought that... Um, you know, it's funny, Richard Brody wrote a review of it for The New Yorker in which he accused, in which he described SAS's other films as being like uh, annoyingly French, pho- phony, highbrow films. And I have to say that because there is this uh, poltergeisty, haunting element, ghost, literally ghost story to it, you know, you can't, it has like this B schlocky side. But I felt about this movie like, ugh, this is so French. Like, this is so already pretentiously 
French. Like I just, I'm happy to keep thinking about it, and we'll I'll, we'll push past my initial reaction. But that was sort of how I felt about it. Okay, but so it's a French movie with an American movie star in basically every frame. Of oh, the totally. Movie, right? But just the the sensibility was so like um, phonally elevated. Like I, I think it is. It's like it's like a pretty. Um, so it, it literally starts as like a ghost story. She's kind of freaking herself out. She's staying at her brother's house trying to communicate with him and um there may actually be spirits in the house and then and then it transitions extremely quickly to her life in paris that seems um Gabe has connected it for us, but seems like really fragmented from this experience as a medium where she's going around to like cartier and hermes and picking up clothes um for this woman and she doesn't um she doesn't personally seem like she you know she has a sort of very butch aesthetic like a you know, she wears like shapeless clothes, but that she's picking up all this sort of. Oh, but it's very stuff. chic. It's very chic, bush, butch. Yes, it's she's like she is Kristen Stewart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or like she looks like she's dressed in the like Olsen twins line, like sort of. Yeah, it's very expensive, like, like boxy the black row, t-shirts, expensive felted yeah. sweaters, and yeah, totally. Um, and those uh, those it takes a while for those stories to even thematically sort of begin to intertwine themselves together. Yeah, and and as she goes around and and does her job as a personal shopper, goes to boutiques and says, yes, she will wear these pants, she won't wear those pants or whatever. And the shopkeepers always say, would you like to try them on? And she says, oh, I'm not allowed to try them on. And then eventually she does in a sort of transgressive moment. But she's allowed... That ended, because this is a French film, in her masturbating in someone's bed. Right. Because, like, why would this person who's sort of exhibited no sexuality at any point and has a completely phony boyfriend... Like an implausible boyfriend who allegedly works for tech security, but honestly is a barista in L.A., but he lives in Oman. <laughs> well, but and who is never physically in the same space as her, right? She has <laughs> also a that, who, who only but is implausible even through the screen as a boyfriend. Yeah, I mean, plausib- the plausibility of the relationship does not seem like the film's primary <laughs> concern, right? The film is more concerned with Kristen Stewart stepping into the boutique and and being able to occupy the actress's glamour, being able to occupy her boss's style and, and conceptual space, but not being able to occupy her physical space, not being able to put on these clothes herself. And when she finally does, then yes, it becomes a sort of sexualized transgressive event. Can I make an even more Philistinic comment about this movie, Willow? We can Please. try and, and out Philistine each other. I didn't think there was enough personal shopping in this movie <laughs> called Personal Shopper. It's really by not which, about that. By <laughs> which I mean, I felt that the movie was not that smart about their relationship to the clothes in some ineffable way that I can't quite put my finger on. But... I agree, Gabe, that the when the movie is about otherworldly presences, either spiritual or you know technological, and the in the kind of blinking three dots of waiting for the next te- text message, I loved it. I think that scene on the train um, is amazing and an amazing piece of cinematography. The colors are beautiful. The her like acting as she like basically all she's doing is like scrunching her face and like tossing about and waiting for the next text message, and yet it's transfixing and amazing. I don't fully understand how the clothes and the relationship to her boss's glamour connect to this other movie that's about grief and technology. And I, perhaps you have a sophisticated intellectual argument about this, Gabe. 
Well, I agree that to some extent, as with the long-distance relationship, some of this is like the donné of the film, right? You have to accept this is her boyfriend and they have a long-distance relationship. This is her relationship with her employer. She's the person who can correctly identify the clothes that the employer wants. And so she goes and she says this one and that one. And we don't actually get to see that process at work. And the film isn't really interested in depicting the specifics of her profession, which I agree would be a really interesting thing to see if you could actually get some insight into how she can tell, like, what is it that makes this piece of clothing work and this one not work. What we see is the the um, the sort of mechanics of the operation, um, and and what, but but the the way in which it functions, I think, on on a thematic level, is that the, we never really see the boss. We only see the boss in one brief scene when the boss is talking on the phone and doesn't have time to answer Kristen Stewart's question, um, and and yet the boss's self-identity, public image, sense of style, clothing preferences are entirely dominant, right? Are what's make what's sending Kristen Stewart from one end of Europe to the other end of Europe and and setting up all of these relationships and getting her in hot water with all of the boutiques that want the clothes back and the boss won't let her return the clothes. Um, it, it, it feels to me like the boss is herself a ghost or the boss's celebrity is itself a ghost, is a, 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 an absent presence in the same way that there are a lot of other absent presences in the movie. This movie is in addition to all the arty things that it is, it sort of has these thriller and poltergeist and ghost story elements. But I thought uh, that at various points, it sort of telegraphed the mystery, like it telegraphed the answer to the mystery so clearly to the audience that it making clear that some of these genre thrilling elements were like a charade, basically. Like it was just, um, it was just, oh, it was an art exercise, like putting on the trappings of, um, of a genre exercise in any way, and that that actually undercut some of the some, some of the tension of the film. I mean, it's not. It's like it isn't. It was almost. We have all these like cool gugas that are supposed to make you feel tense, and I was like, but I. This seems very explicable to me. What did you think of Kristen Stewart? She's in basically every shot of this movie. She's giving a, a, a unusual performance. What did you think of watching her? I thought she was great. I, I, the, that same Richard Brody review that you mentioned will uh, make some extremely baroque argument about how mostly she underacts and like posits a whole hypothetical relationship between the director and actress and the various ways in which he has caused her to like contortedly overact in this movie. And I was just like, what are you talking about? That was totally interesting. She seems smart and good. I liked her performance. I thought she was also good. I mean, I think there's something funny about Kristen Stewart kind because of her relationship to fame, which is like it's it's in conversation with her as a celebrity. It's not just about her performance. It's like it speaks to the persona of Kristen Stewart. Yeah, I think that's a great point because in this movie, she's constantly sort of squirming. Like she hates being looked at. And even when there's no one within the movie looking at her, there you are sitting there in the theater watching her and it feels like she wants you to stop which looking is, at her. And it's compelling. With that, and that is actually not familiar necessarily from all her other roles right. in Twilight, but it is 100% familiar from her experience on red carpet or like paparazzi photos like that is our sort of image of Kristen Stewart someone who just like doesn't want to be seen that's right it's like she's finally brought all that discomfort into her performance and it like it, it it's it's weirdly engaging to watch I think people should go see it what do you guys think I think everyone in America should rush out and see it I mean <laughs> okay. I think you should like watch out Beauty and the Beast <laughs> I think you should listen to what Gabe said and then like see it and know you're gonna be like not love it <laughs> but be interested or be intellectually stimulated maybe 
<laughs> it's Personal Shopper from Olivier Asayas. Come and talk to us about it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, before we bring Jody Rosen on to talk about Chuck Berry, uh, we have a little bit of business. Gabe, do you want to share our business with the readers today? I would love to share the business with them. Uh, listeners, first of all, a live culture Gabfest show will take place Wednesday, April 19th in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, at the Hamilton. Uh, tickets are on sale at slate.com slash live. And coming up in Slate Plus, or I guess you call it Slat Plus here, uh, we'll be talking about the phenomenon of the TV that you watch with your significant other and then the TV that you have to watch alone. Uh, we'll also have a little bit more to say about the ending of Personal Shopper, uh, which we continued to disagree about. Uh, to hear us talk about that and to support Slate's journalism, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus, or now download Slate's iOS app, uh, search for Slate in the app store, and you can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days. You can hear all those bonus segments without paying anything for 90 days. Uh, go to the iOS app store and search for Slate and download our app. Uh, Gabe, is it also true to say that if you use the Slate app, it will be easier than any other method to figure out how to get our bonus podcast segments uh, listenable by your ears? That is absolutely true. If you are a Slate Plus member and you have tragically been having difficulties accessing Slate Plus podcast content, I strongly recommend you go to the App Store and download the Slate app where just after signing into Plus, you will find all of that stuff is in your phone automatically. Uh, that sounds lovely. All right, on to our next segment. The extraordinary rock and roll musician Chuck Berry died last week at the age of 90. We are joined today by longtime friend of the show, Jody Rosen, to talk about Chuck Berry and his legacy. Hi, Jody. Hi, Julia. Uh, I will start by saying that this one struck me close to home uh, because there were exactly two cassette tapes in my dad's Honda Accord for 10 years of my youth, and one of them was Chuck Berry's Greatest Hits. And so I know every note on that cassette tape by heart deep in my soul and is like the soundtrack of my childhood. Um, and I was I was sad to learn of his passing and amazed to read about his history and his legacy, which I never really thought about intellectually on a level beyond like listening to the song while I waited outside in the parking lot while my dad went into the tile store or wherever we were going in my youth. Um, so why don't we start with uh, one of Barry's most indelible songs and listen to a clip from Johnny B. Good, and then Jody, I'll, I'll ask you to talk a little bit about uh, what made his career so important. So, Jody, how should we think about Chuck Berry and how he shaped music as we know it today? Well, I guess I guess I'll just start by saying the same thing that I wrote on Twitter within a minute of hearing the news on Saturday night, which is that Chuck Berry was the the greatest of the greatest rock and roller of all time, and um, and for my money, the greatest songwriter, the greatest American songwriter. Um, and um, on on Twitter, I said he's he was a wit and storyteller on par with Mark Twain. Um, 
or, you know, whatever other titan of American culture you want to throw in there. That's that's the level that I put him on. Um, you know, some people have said he invented rock and roll, and I don't think that's something that can be said of any one individual, although he probably has a um, a better claim than than anyone. Um, and, and in fact, Barry was quite generous, um, atypically generous for him in, um, in crediting his influences from uh, Louis Jordan, the great jump blues star of the 30s and 40s, um, to uh, Louis Jordan's lead guitarist, Carl Hogan, who he credited with, you know, influencing his signature riffs, to Chicago blues, jazz swing, country and Western music. We can hear all that stuff in his music and more. Um, but what I think we can definitively say about Barry is that he um, uh, set the template for rock and roll. And that's a, that's, and it's a model to which is hewed more or less ever since, um, you know, in his songs, the, th the great kind of classic themes, uh, stories about teenagers and sex and cars and freedom and dancing. And of course about rock, rock and roll itself. Those were the stories that he told. Um, and he also set the sonic template, um, with his brilliant guitar playing, um, you know, he sort of established the guitar solo as the great, you know, heroic sound of heroic lyric sound of rock and roll. Um, in fact, if, if, a, if a historian wants to, wanted to identify, you know, the kind of one pivot moment in popular music when um, the kind of piano ceded its primacy as the, the driving force of popular music to the guitar would probably be the intro to Roll Over Beethoven, which is when Barry first unleashed that his famous double stop riff that we actually just heard in Johnny Be Good. As a performer, he embodied rock stardom as it would be, you know, elaborated by everyone since. He was an electric presence on stage. You know, he was he was suave and he was cool, but he was also wild. Um, you know, of course, he was he he mugged on stage. He moved. He did his signature duck walk. Um, but it was really the 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 kind of rhythmic attack of his songs um, that galvanizing kind of hopped up edge to his songs with the overdriven electric guitar, the the volume, the tempo um, that turned rock and roll into rock and roll. That is, it wasn't just, there's been lots of American dance, popular music that was dance music before, but this was music to roll down the car windows, play play on the car radio, put your pedal to the floor. It was, it was like, you know, the soundtrack of um, post-war American kind of confidence and affluence, but also restlessness. I did ask my dad over the weekend, like, why, why was that one of the cassettes? Like, what was your actual relationship to it? And the, the, the danceability of it, he remembered from his childhood, just it feeling really different, what it felt like to dance to it. But, you know, he just spoke also about uh, Chuck Berry's lyrics, which are incredible. And I, I'd love to play the, the top of rock and roll music, which has just this amazing set of lyrics, uh, just to get a, a taste of his the writerliness of his music, which is so feels so direct. I have no kick against unless they try to play it too darn fast and change the beauty of the melody until it sounds just like a symphony. That's why I go for that. I th yeah, I think that's exactly right what you said, that it feels, that the lyrics to Chuck Berry's songs feel so direct and immediate, and it's only later after those songs have sort of wormed their way into your 
bloodstream that you start to recognize, oh, actually, this is very dense and very careful craftsmanship. This is stuff that was written by like somebody who was writing very, very carefully. There are those, uh, the rhymes in rock and roll music and the, the parallels and everything are obviously very sort of nailed in place uh, and, and impossible to dislodge. Um, there are other songs that maybe are not the like most up-tempo, uh, jump rock and roll songs, um, that, that have more of a like country storytelling flavor that are, um, weird songs, strange songs in a way that it took me a while to notice. The one I come back to a lot in my mind is, um, You Never Can Tell, uh, which a lot of people think of as Teenage Wedding. Uh, which just tells the story of like two people who who have French names, possibly because they're in the Louisiana, um, and and who get married kind of young, and people are skeptical, but then they like do really well, and they have this happy and and sexy marriage. They had a teenage wedding, and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. Uh, it's a weird story to make into a song, and, and it winds up feeling kind of like a minimalist short story, like a Raymond Carver story or something like that. And then every ver- it doesn't have a chorus, but every verse lands on this line, C'est la vie, c'est the old folks, it goes to show you never can tell, which is basically like four cliches in a row, but those cliches like cumulatively turn into a kind of existential shrug at the mystery of marriage and human happiness. It's a very profound song, I think, and and it took me a long time to notice it. One of the things that's interesting about Chuck Berry to me is that um, I also have a cassette tape story about it, which is just that um, when I was a kid, my cousin was dating a guy in a rock and roll band, and I was like seven or eight, and he made me a tape of like early rock and roll. Love that, that guy. Totally. And I listen to it all the time. And it had like a lot of literature and it. it turns out a lot of Chuck Berry. But one of the things that's been interesting about him dying is that I suddenly realized like I know all these songs I didn't even know were his. And because he's also been covered so much, it's like I think a lot of people have that relationship to him where it's like these are songs you know all the words to. They're songs you think you don't, you know, you don't even think you know the title and then they start to play and you know them. But you didn't actually know they were him necessarily. I mean, not just because like the Beatles covered it because literally maybe you didn't know that version was him. Um, And that's just been sort of, I mean, we can maybe talk about his legacy a little bit. That's like a way to think about it. But he has sort of, for someone of such stature and such importance, like, you know, he's maybe not as famous as as some of his other, the people who have, who cite him as an influence. Yeah. I mean, I guess one, one thing I'd add to, you know, our thoughts about him as a, as a songwriter, I mean, I think Gabe's right. His song, he really is a great storyteller first and foremost. You know, there are songs like, like rock and roll music or roll over Beethoven that aren't quite story songs, but many of them are really ballads, you know, and kind of, and I think he really, in that way, he really did draw on country music, on country and Western music because he, um, uh, he was, not only a master storyteller, but a master of pithy storytelling. <laughs> you know, concision was his thing. Almost all of his songs clock in at under three minutes, many of them under two and a half minutes, and yet they conjure, you know, a whole world. Um, you know, Ga- the, you never can tell the one that Gabe was talking about is, a, is an incredible song for exactly the reasons he said. And I think he, he also, you know, he, when he was asked about songwriting at one point, he said nouns and verbs about lyric writing. That's what you got to do. You got to put in lots of nouns and verbs. And he's, you know, it sounds glib, but it's, it's true. No, it's you know, great. his, his, you know, his, his songs were, you know, just crammed with, 
details kind of, you know, of mid-century American life, you know, and, um, and they had that, uh, and, you know, in terms of verbs, you know, go Johnny, go, go. There were so many travel logs in his songs. His songs often take place on the road in an automobile or a train or a car. What's that verb in the first line of Maybelline? It's something like, as I was motivating on up that hill. Right. He, like he's made up a whole new verb there. I know exactly what he, he means was, by He was motivating. a master of, of like, yeah, of like vernacular America or neologisms, right? Because, yeah. um, you know, uh, they, they furnished an apartment with a two with a two room Roebuck sale. The coolerator was crammed with TV dinners and ginger ale. That's from You Never Can Tell. Now, maybe a coolerator was a brand name of a, of a refrigerator uh, back in 1963, whenever that song came out. I don't know. Or maybe that's just Chuck Berry. Either Chuck way, Berry. beautiful yeah. word. But but yeah, I mean, concision is really a thing. It's remarkable how, how briskly these songs move, um, how much they get in. And, and that's actually, you know, he's, he's one of the, uh, he may be the only kind of titanic 20th century artist whose entire body of work you could like in a long lunch break, sit down and gobble up you know uh he you know a fame there was a famous chuck berry compilation the great 28 and that's more or less you know you, you need like three dozen chuck berry songs um and you know you don't need much more because everything everything you want is in there yeah and, and that's actually one thing that that's interesting on willa's legacy point i mean he if you did happen to get past the right cassette tape in your youth, uh, you know and love his work, however much you know about about what you know about his work. But for all that he is digestible, it does feel like he doesn't get as much attention, perhaps, as, as some of the people who were influenced by him or some of the other pioneers who were around at the same time as him. Why do you think that is, Jody? Uh, our colleague Jack Hamilton addressed this in his book, Just Around Midnight, and I know that there was a Slate podcast series Based on his book, am I right? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, race pop in the '60s. There you State go, Academy. <laughs> uh, so, and and I think Jack came in here to talk about his book. Um, so this may be you know well trod territory, but I mean it's it's simply that you know the the long sad story of American popular music, its historiography, the long history of African American artists innovating and not being remunerated <laughs> properly for their for their innovations, and you know white artists getting more money, fame, and acclaim. Um, not that Chuck. Barry was hardly not famous. He was a huge star in his time. He was a he was a pop star and a sex symbol that who you know crossed racial boundaries. But his um, his career was finite in terms. You know, he became an oldie but a goodie around about the mid '60s, and he sort of, despite one big novelty hit in the early '70s, that's what he was for the rest of his life. Um, and uh, you know, the the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the white artists who you know, rock and roll was reframed as rock in the late '60s and through the '70s. And when you take out the and roll, um, that's for me kind of racially coded language. You're like losing some of the some of the swing, and you're you're losing the black people. So. I mean, I, I I think that's that's the big story here, and and of course, this is something that Barry was himself was very aware of and wasn't shy about uh, discussing or making it plain whenever he was, you know, in front of a microphone or in front of other musicians that, you know, this was this was his music and this was this was black music. So you know, Barry addressed these themes kind of at a at an angle in lots of his music, but he always had an eye on. The marketplace, you know, he wanted he wanted to make money. He didn't want to alienate his white teenage fan base. 
There's another. There's a line in Jack Hamilton's wonderful obituary for Chuck Berry, which we ran on Slate over the weekend, uh, that gets at this race point and his awareness of the teenageness and the multiracialness of his audience in a way that I hadn't really thought of before. And I'll just read a bit because I thought he put it very well. Barry possessed many geniuses as a songwriter, but the most consequential was his ability to write songs about being black in America that could double as allegories for being a teenager in America, an audacious bit of rhetorical alchemy that altered popular culture and reverberates to this day. I mean, what Jack says is is spot on. And I think you could extend it. I mean, or you, you can, for instance, we can find it in all sorts of songs. Like, let's look at those, the, the rock and roll songs, Roll Over Beethoven or, you know, rock and roll music. Those, you know, you can just read those as, He's talking about black music, you know, his music. And he's talking about dislodging the old Western European, the greats of Western European music with African-American, you know, rhythm and sound and wit. Like a song like Promised Land, maybe Barry's greatest song, this incredible two minute, 30 second travel log, a story of a, you know, a kind of picaresque journey of a poor boy uh, from Norfolk, Virginia out to California. Barry wrote that while he was doing jail time. Um, he was arrested for, um, for I don't know what the legalese is, but for transporting a minor. This was a 14-year-old girl. Um, Barry said she was a prostitute across state lines. He was convicted under the Mann Act. Barry himself and many people thought there was a huge racial double, double standard in terms of the, the, you know, Barry's legal travails. Um, but also there is certainly... Um, a narrative to be explored and I remembering Chuck Berry about his treatment and mistreatment of women, which is a whole other ball of wax. And I guess right now I just commend people to go read a, a piece on NPR that Ann Powers wrote, which I actually just read. I think it just posted a couple hours before we taped this, um, which addresses all that st complexity very interestingly and thoroughly. All that said, uh, while Barry was in jail, he wrote the song Promised Land, or at least began writing it. And this is this, you know, this, this cross-country journey. And, you know, that when I think about the kind of like mythic Americana that you hear, um, certainly in Bruce Springsteen, um, you know, that people often credit to Kerouac, these big open road songs. Well, that Chuck Berry really, really got there first. And that song, Promised Land, is very clearly, you know, a... You know, the, the protagonist is only named as the poor boy. There's there's a there's a class and a, a racial element dimension to it, um, which is quite clear. And, um, you know, and Barry himself, I think, said that this was a kind of oblique way of address addressing the freedom rides that were taking place at this time, the civil rights movement. There's there's a there's a lot to excavate from Barry's songs, which he you, you know, he doesn't quite hit it head on, but it's there. All right, Jody. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Chuck Berry. Thank you, Julia. Come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest to share some of your favorite songs and observations about Berry and his music. This past week, news emerged that Us Weekly, the tabloid, was sold to American Media, the company that owns the National Enquirer. Joining us in the Brooklyn studio to dissect what this means for Us Weekly and what Us Weekly itself has meant over the past few decades, Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber of the podcast Who Weekly. Uh, welcome, Bobby and Lindsay. Hi. Hi welcome thank you. to you. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so comfortable on my own podcast now. It's just, I'm just trying to make everyone feel good. Clearly. All right. Good, good, good. Uh, so 
It's a really sad occasion, in my view, that brings you to our show. I've been extolling the virtues of Who Weekly on the show for like months now because I've been a completely addicted listener. So it's very exciting to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, and the reason that I love your show, or one of them, is that it has uh, filled a hole in my life that Us Weekly stopped filling about five or six years ago. Uh, and I'm going to give a little bit of personal history here to set the table, and then we will uh, get to the meat of our segment. But Us Weekly was a really good magazine, in my view, for like 12 years from when Bonnie Fuller figured it out, and then Janice Min took it over, and it revolutionized the way we look at celebrities in ways that you guys will no doubt have opinions about. But then there came a moment where I didn't know who any of the celebrities were because they were all fake reality TV celebrities. And so I stopped reading it, like apparently many other Americans. And that moment is also the you know, founding theory of your podcast, which uh, tries to determine thems or celebrities that old people like me know from who's or these sort of proto whatever they are, reality celebrities. Um, did you guys kill Us Weekly? Is it your fault? <laughs> we would never kill Us Weekly. I wish we bought Us Weekly. That would be the dream. I mean, I think it all stems from us like wanting to work at Us Weekly. I mean, mm-hmm. always. Don't, I've interned at Us Weekly. And? I promise you do not want to work at Us Weekly. <laughs> I definitely did apply to a, a job there. It was a fascinating internship, but you don't want to work there. Right. I mean, I think it's more just we uh, we, we saw the we saw we wanted to keep reading Us Weekly like we'd always had before, but also felt the same way you felt, where it's like we didn't recognize anyone mm-hmm. and thought, what a wonderful thing to kind of be the annotation, to annotate Us Weekly and to kind of capture their humor before obviously it went away, which we had no idea. But I mean, clearly we kind of knew, I guess it yeah. was not long for this world. And you and you mentioned the, the six years, I think you said, is when it, it was no longer the great magazine around the time that Instagram became very popular. It's yeah. like the moment celebrities took control of putting photography entirely in their own hands and releasing photographs of themselves whenever they wanted to. Us Weekly needed more content. It's like, where are they going to get it? Right. I think they still managed, though, in the past few years to keep the humor that they've always had, that kind of wink, wink. We know we're we know that we're like embarrassing ourselves, but we love it and we're shameless, which I think is what we really latched on to. But I mean, there's I don't know how that's going to continue under this new regime or whatever. Wait, go back to the Instagram theory, because I see you pointing the finger away from yourself and towards social (laughs) media. So is the theory there that the actual A-list celebrities began to propagate their own images and didn't need the intermediary of Us Weekly, so Us Weekly had to go for lower rung celebrities? Or was it more that Us Weekly could only afford the images it could get access to, and that was from only semi-famous people who would like put in the call and be like, hey, I'm going to be shopping on this street, come photograph me. Those are the best, those are the best uh, photos. I, I think I think the theory is that when Instagram came out, celebrities were getting an Im- immediate responses from their they could really like Beyonce could release a, a photo of herself on Instagram announcing her pregnancy, and that is the story. She can control the narrative herself entirely on her own Instagram account. So whenever celebrities realized they had that power, that that was twofold. That meant that they could release things whenever they wanted to and know that they had a guaranteed audience of X million people, X million followers at their disposal whenever they wanted it. And also that the lower rung celebrities could create audiences just as large and have that control, even though 
they weren't necessarily A-list. Right, because you could tune into somebody's Snapchat and be like, oh, they have this amazing Snapchat. I love them for it. And never read Us Weekly. You Mm -hmm. never have to go through the middleman. You could just go straight to the thing. Someone said, oh, my God, their Instagram is incredible. you got to follow it. And also, why would you pay for expensive photos if you could just take people's Instagrams, literally put them in a magazine, which Mm -hmm. is what they did for a lot of their spreads. And they're late. They would always be late. And I think the... Weekly is a tough timetable. Totally. And that's often for a magazine. And the and the other thing about being a a who celebrity who's who has a following is that us weekly like these celebrity weeklies these tabloids are writing about people who their audiences care about and so it's like they're only going to write about people but people they're only going to write about celebrities people care about and whenever they notice that someone what be it Julianne Huff or Halsey has a huge following online. They're going to say, hey, this person is popular on Instagram, so I guess we should write about that. Yeah, I guess my question a little bit is, I mean, I think it's interesting and probably true that, like, um, the trajectory of Us Weekly and, like, the price of celebrity paparazzi photos is, like, deeply intertwined. And so the period you stopped watching, Julia, I mean, stopped reading is, like, probably around when the market in paparazzi photos, like, bottomed out and when there had been this frenzy between all these people bidding over photographs of Britney Spears, you know, shaving her head or whatever, like that was the height of those tabloids. But part of me thinks that Us Weekly has like willingly cultivated, it has cultivated an audience that's interested in all these who's. Like it's not, it's it's almost like they, um, they like vertically integrated their, <laughs> um, their organization. They like created celebrities and helped create celebrities um, that the people who read Us Weekly are interested in. So it's like it's it's like a microcosm that they control every part of and they don't have to, you know, deal with actual A-list actors who have attitude about Us Weekly or have attitude right. about their photos. I mean, if photos. they say that they're famous, then they're famous. If you read Us Weekly, right. you're in the world of Us Weekly. And to you, Julianne Huff is famous because you see her in Us Weekly every week and they don't tell you who she is every week. That's what's kind of amazing is th- they're just like saying, this is our A-list. This is our version of A-list. This is the person that gives us the most access and the most fun stuff. Anyways. This is a character in the Us Weekly world. Which is kind of great because in when we do Who Weekly, that's kind of what happens when in our podcast where we like talk about somebody doing a funny thing once and then they become a character in this world and people somehow then start paying attention to them outside our podcast. And and that's what's kind of amazing. Well, what's so funny <laughs> then is also it's like made itself like this funny mass niche publication where like you cannot read it unless you are conversant in this weird specific world that involves like millions of people and is like the biggest pop culture world in, in lots of ways. But it's like totally indecipherable. But if you're just no, going to the... Like, it's yeah. like, it's like reading Wolf Hall and like trying to keep track of all of the relationships and you need like the little guide at the front, which is something that, that your podcast has served. It, it, it seems like almost the, the magazine shifts from being journalism of a sort. And I, I'm intrigued by your tidbit, Willa, and we will get back to that. But journalism of a sort about people that we have traditionally classed as celebrities to something that's almost more akin to a magazine version of a reality TV show where the people who get covered are the people who are game to give access and provide fun stuff for coverage at a relatively cheap rate. And here is my question to you. I will and I will I will preface it with an observation. In my view, Us Weekly has at least when I was reading it generally been journalistically somewhat sound. Like I think if you read something in Star or OK, which are the two other supermarket tabloids owned or like glossy celebrity tabloids, I'm not counting the Inquirer here, owned by American media, 
Like the things in those magazines, in my view, generally tend not to turn out to be true. And then People has like the whole fact-checking apparatus of Time Inc. behind it and is generally accurate, but mostly pretty accessy and boring. And Us Weekly has, for me, always been the sweet spot between uh, if you read it in Us Weekly, it probably will turn out to be true in like three to six months. Like, were there standards? What was happening there, well, so Willa, is, when so you worked I, there? What kind of NDA did you sign? standards? <laughs> so I was an intern at Us Weekly in around like 2004. I would say maybe 2003. Okay, so we're, we're going straight to the source. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, um, <laughs> and I should say, like, I obviously was like a vaguely embittered intern who just like, that's the only time I ever had a blog because I was like, I cannot believe I'm here transcribing <laughs> like three hour interviews of The Bachelor. I'm like getting Jettison <laughs> veggie So there were interviews. <laughs> but I would say my big takeaway is actually that they had a fact checking department at that time. And there was like really... Um, it was I, it was rigorous in a way like they would word things extremely specifically to um, mean certain things. So it would be like, according to sources, they'd be like, that's not true. And someone told us that. But like, we're, you know, we're not standing by that 100 percent. But if they said like this happened, they that was fact checked. I'm always curious about these sources because, yes, I well, usually find that they don't. Well, a huge number of people on payroll. Like, right. That was the most interesting thing. Is, right. like, you do these interviews that were, they did, I mean, staffers do these interviews, like extremely long interviews with like the first person kicked off The Bachelor or something um, that are as long as possible and have them, you know, talk as much shit as basically they can to use at any point in the future. Um, but are, like, you know, are very knowing and long. And then they also like they... And, like, I obviously saw this less because I was a little intern, but they, like, had at the time, like, um, like an email, like an alias, you know, that, like, they have sources that they, like, pay, like hairdressers and, like, friends of and, like, you know, the limo driver who just, like, or the people who were, like, in on the scene who would just, like, send them tidbits about, like, what had happened that night before. Um, and obviously they paid those people. I don't think – I mean, they may have even paid them more if they used the item, but I think those people just, like, they had just people on payroll. So, like, that was a source of a lot of their stuff, and then that was sources, you know? And that might be, like, a really small, like, sentence in something, or it might be a bigger piece. But it is – it was – I think your sense of it, Julia, is correct that, like, they aren't just, like, we just straight make things up. Do you think American media purchasing Us Weekly will change the tenor of Us Weekly in a week-to-week basis. If they fire the whole staff, yes. Do you think they're going to do that? They're re-interviewing everyone according to, like, the post. They're re- everyone has to re-interview to keep their job. Do they the have rumor. to say, like, I like they have to swear fealty to? <laughs> Sorry, we should, we should back <laughs> here. Knows? So America, American Media owns the National Enquirer. And, and, and Radar Online. Where I also work. The National Enquirer. <laughs> <laughs> you worked at the National Enquirer? <laughs> no, I worked for Radar oh, okay. before Radar Before it was became. Radar. Radar was cool. Yeah. Remember when Radar was cool? Yeah, that's when I worked yeah. at Radar. <laughs> All right. I like the alternate history where you worked at National Enquirer better. <laughs> um, <laughs> After my internship at Us Weekly, I took job. Wow, National you really Enquirer. moved on up. Then I was really horrified by their fact-checking standards. Oh, my God. Yeah, of course. Um, so, but anyway, so just to just to zoom out for listeners who haven't been following this. So, you know, American media, the owner of these various companies, including the National Enquirer, has been reported to be very pro-Trump. Um, and there were a slew of Trump family covers of Us Weekly during this period when the magazine was up for sale in, uh, you know, some some positive, some less positive, uh, but in a way that engendered speculation among informed consumers of Us Weekly, like the hosts of Who Weekly. Uh, yeah, so I'm curious what you guys observed in the tenor of their Trump coverage and, and you know, whether you think where you think it might go. I read a few stories about this where they say, well, they weren't all the covers weren't entirely positive. But even the ones that they point out to when they say they weren't entirely positive, which is this one about Melania, Trump's secret life and personal hell, private hell, um, 
Kelly Conaboy at The Outline wrote a really good piece about like the narrative of the personal hell that women face, like women of, you know, powerful men. It's really very funny and insightful. But even that piece was sympathetic to the Trumps and a piece that pointed out um, uh, Jared and Ivanka's struggles was sympathetic to Jared and Ivanka. And I I mean, who knows what will like time will tell what the, the magazine actually becomes if it becomes anything. And I think, like Lindsay said, it has a lot to do with whether or not they maintain the journalists who've been there for a long time and like are going to be resistant to changing their their tone. But it, it was it was very alarming to see so many sequential covers like consecutive covers that made the trumps look like any normal happy wonderful family we should all be loving and enjoying but when you when you take the us weekly approach and you apply that to like actual proximity to power doesn't it like blow up the whole thing like the whole point of this us weekly game is that like these are silly people doing silly things that have no real consequences for anyone and let's tell stories about I these paper dolls i think it is dolls. extremely easy to convince yourself that they're silly people in the Trump administration, whether or not they are actually also powerful. It's like... But if Us Weekly can get their hands on anyone of any importance, they will. It's it's not... I think it's like they've they've gone to the silly people because that's what they had to do. And that was their strategy to keep the magazine like alive and somehow running. But I think if they have access to anyone important, they're they're dropping Julianne Huff and they are running right to Kelly and Co- like, I don't I just I don't think they have ever had any qualms about that. You know, no one at the, no one at Us Weekly is like, I don't want to normalize them. I don't want to give them attention. I think they're all game. You know, if Kelly Con- Conaway was uh, if she was, if Kelly and Conway was posting more Instagrams, I'm sure they'd be all over it, you know? <laughs> well, in some ways, it's like poetic justice, right? Like that, like, you know, we have a reality TV president. This is a magazine that turned into a reality TV magazine. Like in some ways, independent of the ownership switch, it would be a totally reasonable strategy for Us Weekly to treat these people as Us Weekly characters. Which is funny because now, because New York Magazine had her on, her on their cover and I'm sure Us Weekly was like, we're scooped. <laughs> <laughs> the only time that's ever happened. I think the I think the bigger risk here actually is not the politics because I think there's a decent argument for them covering all these people independent of an ownership change. I think the bigger risk is the voice, and I'd love to conclude by asking you, Bobby and Lindsay, to just describe a couple of the features of Us Weekly. It's it's kind of ludicrous, self deprecating humor that you admire because I think the real risk is they fire a bunch of the people who currently make the magazine and basically create like a glossy tabloid shop where they that that they just like repurpose the stuff that's already going into okay and star and you have three worthless tabloid magazines instead of two i think the biggest problem i think the easiest answer to your question is like if we lose what's in your bag and who wore it best i think that's a national what about tragedy. just like us but i but but it's it's not just those things it's like the people who created those things and the people who who can have fun with that sort of celebrity minutia. Once those people, if they leave the building, that's that's a problem. I mean, Julia, I hear your your anxiety, but all of these things <laughs> seem to me like this is a thing we share. This is not like a blue red thing. This obsession with celebrities and also with who celebrity is. This is like a national pastime that actually we're all engaged in. I, I mean, Us Weekly probably has like 
extremely bipartisan, um, like, readership, you know? I mean, maybe what happens is they get more earnest and then it becomes more entertaining. I mean, I can only, that might happen. Like, for us, like, the winky, the wink of Us Weekly is always taunting us because we're kind of winking back. And if and if it's, we're both knowing, then it kind of ruins the whole thing where it's like, we, they're like, we know what you're doing. We're doing it too. Maybe if they're more earnest, we can be more effacing in a funnier way. I don't know. And 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 like you said, why would they why would they want to ruin a magazine that has like reliable ad revenue? Why would they want to ruin something that like does really well every week? I think their circulation is still pretty insane. But yeah, nearly uh, nearly two million, I think. Yeah, so I think it's just whenever you see the direct, when you see National Enquirer and you see Radar and the other brands under American Media, it's easy to get scared. Um, but I, I mean, I guess, I guess nothing could happen, but I, it's just such a, it's such a scary idea to think that Us Weekly will turn into the National Enquirer, even if it's completely implausible. A national nightmare. A national uh, to nightmare. To go on the list of our national <laughs> <Yeah>. nightmares. <laughs> like even, even if it's, even if it probably won't happen, like the thought of that made us gasp. Well, I feel, I feel like the life in the Trump administration is, I think, as Gabe put it recently, uh, wondering whether you're worried about the right things or the wrong things. And thank you guys for coming on to give us a <laughs> dose of why we should be worried about the fate of Us Weekly. Uh, it was a treat having you on the show. Thank, thank you for you. having us. All right. Now is the moment in our show when we endorse. If I'm doing my best Steve impression, I will go Will. Willa, what have you got? Um, I would like to endorse a novel that is not new called The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. Obviously, the election now happened a couple months ago, but in the wake of the election, I have been finding um, solace in fiction that is not contemporary um, because it just makes you realize, like, history is long. And that's nice. Uh, and so I had been meaning to read. Um, I really like, like Dickens. I like really long novels. And I had been meaning to read Wilkie Collins. and so I read the moonstone and it's so great highly recommend like it's sort of the first um, it's one of the first if not the first detective stories it it, it revolves around um a missing gem um it's told from multiple perspectives it's an extremely modern novel that was written in 1868 um but it really i cannot even more than dickens or like austin it reads so clean and so fast um and despite also being about this gem that is of Indian origin it is not racist, um, which is basically miraculous, um, but is a nice thing when you're reading a good novel not to be constantly tripping up on horribly outdated racist tropes. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's totally gripping, totally page turning, many hundreds of pages. Get to it. All right. That is not on my list and I will put it on my list. Love I the did not know. Great book. That, uh, all right. Gabe, what are you going to endorse? I'm going to endorse uh, an article that appeared in The Guardian a couple weeks ago in the Guardian Long Read section, which is where they put their like magazine-y stuff feature every weekend. Uh, the headline is – well, the, the author of the article is Sam Knight. I'm going to read the head and, and, the, and the deck head, which are long. London Bridge is down, the secret plan for the days after the Queen's death. She's venerated around the world. She has outlasted 12 U.S. presidents. She stands for stability and order, but her kingdom is in turmoil and her subjects are in denial that her reign will ever end. That's why the palace has a plan. 
And it's just <laughs> this incredible feat of reporting where he got everybody to talk about like what happens the moment the queen dies, like who does what, what happens at the BBC, what happens at Buckingham Palace, what happens at all the embassies around the world. And like the protocol for this has been meticulously planned out for like 50 years. And there are like three days where every moment of British life will be meticulously choreographed and it's just fascinating. And thinking about the people who've spent so much of their time, like, planning all of this stuff, it feels like one of those John McPhee New Yorker stories where the accumulation of all of these tiny details suddenly sort of reveals this facet of the world that you didn't really know existed. It's like he had so much reporting in it that it's one of those pieces that there's, like, no quotes because he didn't have time to, like, put in quotes. He just had to paraphrase this huge download of information. That's right. Just hear our fact, 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 fact in a way that like, <laughs> oh, wow, there's a lot here. Um, it's called London Bridge is Down. It's in The Guardian. You can you could type that into Google and, and that will be 40 very entertaining minutes. Uh, fantastic. That is a great recommendation. I am going to endorse the Reagan Library. It is a tempered endorsement, but I took my children there this weekend. It's in Simi Valley, California. And... <laughs> At the Reagan Library, this is like a testament to Reagan's consummate showmanship. Apparently, when he was president, he requested that when the Air Force One that he used, which was used by, you know, I think from presidents from Ford through W, um, it go to his library, which is like an amazing move to call dibs on Air Force One. And now there is a pavilion at his library where you can go inside of this Air Force One that was used by six or seven presidents. Uh, you can also go inside a Marine One, the presidential helicopter, check out a motorcade. There's also a lot of stuff about Reagan's life and legacy. Very propagandistic. Did you know this about presidential libraries, that they're run by the foundation for 30 or 40 years and like they don't sell straight ahead biographies in the bookstore like it's only autobiography and propaganda um not 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 endorsing this museum for the history part just the transportation part if you want to go check out air force one go to the reagan library in simi valley very beautiful uh check out that plane lots of jars of jelly beans and they sell jelly beans to you at the gift shop great experience probably the most pop presidential library i'm going to guess having gone to none of the other libraries uh, while you're in California, you should check out the Nixon Library, which is historiographically very interesting um, and and part of the whole Reclaiming Nixon's Legacy project, uh, which is a strange place to be and a very strange place to take your kids. But no airplanes. But well, I just learned that the but the Nixon Library. So after the after the foundations run them, then they get transferred to the National Archive at some point, and then real historians get involved. Maybe and, and, I went there before the handover when it was still a propaganda wing of, like, Nixon Incorporated. I think the handover has happened, and now Tim Naftali uh, runs it, and there's, like, a whole changing of the guard. I didn't know any of this about presidential libraries, but it's fascinating. And it really, I mean, you sure come away thinking that Reagan was a great guy, if you're paying attention at all, rather than racing your toddler children through <laughs> exhibits about assassination attempts and uh, this, uh, the Cold War and, like video installations of nuclear bombs are going off and your children are just like running to get to the plane. I would basically recommend taking the same approach until the real historians take over this library in a few years. But what a coup to just call dibs on the Air Force One. I'd be like, my presidential library is going to be better than all yours because it has a plane. Great move, Reagan. Great, Great move. communicator. <laughs> Great traveler. Great plane haver. All right. Well, uh, Gabe, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Willa, see you next time. Yeah, I hope so. 
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch, and our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Willa Paskin and Gabe Roth, I'm Julia Turner, and we'll see you soon. Maybelline, why can't you be true? Oh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? You just don't-